0: All right, Philippians chapter number 3, and let's read verse 12 down to verse number 14. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, 13, and 14. Paul, sort of finishing his thought, really from last week, says this, "...not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus." Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth... Under those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now, I would remind you that we have, with last week's lesson, entered into the third and final section of the book of Philippians. Uh, we began with Paul's triumphant example uh, in the first few weeks. And then we looked at uh, Paul's, uh, the, uh, let me get it said right here, here in a second. Hold on, I'm going to flip back through my notes. His tremendous examples. First was his... Uh, His triumphant experience. I'll get it said here in a moment. Uh, His triumphant experience. And then we looked at his uh, tremendous examples. And he gave us three examples in facing uh, discord in the church and in facing false teachers. uh, How that we can uh, keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. How that we can be strengthened and resolved through these things. And then the last section that we began last week was Paul's typical exhortations. Paul never just gave a theological treaty without giving a practical application of it. Uh, because the Word of God, it is, uh, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, but it's also profitable for reproof, and profitable for instruction in righteousness. Uh, so there is always, for every doctrine, there is a driving application, there is a meaningful application to our lives. We began last week and this, uh, this section sort of divides itself into three subsections. The first one that we, uh, looked at last week was this thought that you cannot defraud a man who knows the power of proper theology. Chapter number three, Paul goes through and lays the foundation for what the, the relationship of the believer to Christ Jesus is, what it consists of and subsists of, and, uh, and he talks about what he wants to be as a believer, as a, as a Christian. And then tonight, if the Lord will allow us to, I want us to, uh, to further this sort of thought, and uh, I want us even go a step further and look at this thought. You cannot defile a man who knows the power of positive thinking. Uh, in other words, he talks about our thought life and uh, how what we believe about Christ informs that that thought life. Now, beginning last week, uh, we looked at first the Christian and his beliefs, and then the Christian and his behavior. Uh, and in closing out that thought, the Christian and his behavior, I want us to notice a couple things as we enter into the text this evening. I said when we first read it that we're really kind of finishing Paul's thought. And if I can, let me back up and read a little bit so that we get the entirety of what Paul Was saying, Verse number 8 of chapter 3. Paul says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Paul in these verses and the ones prior to it detailed his past glory, what he had had in his own self-righteousness, and then his present gains that he had gave all of that up, all of that boasting in the flesh, all of that confidence in his own righteousness. He had given all those things up that he might know Christ in a personal way. Let me just make this statement in passing uh, that for the average uh, sinner walking up and down the street, it may not be the sort of religious self-righteousness and dogmatism that Paul had, but very often they have something that they too refuse to give up and they've made it an idol in their life and they refuse to turn away from that thing Uh, you see it very vividly illustrated in the experience of addicts Uh, and I think that's because their idol is, is so socially unpalatable and is so apparent. They wear the scars and they wear the gauntness in their appearance and you can see that even when they know that they're lost even when they know they need to be saved, very often they are unwilling to give that thing up That crust, that idol that they are trusting in, that they are looking to in order to cling to Christ. And for Paul, it was self-righteousness. It was was religiosity. And uh, he refused to give that up. But finally, the road to Damascus, Paul gave his heart and his life to Christ. And it forever changed him. His purpose in life was no longer uh, being found having his own righteousness, uh, but now it was to have uh, the righteousness uh, which is of God by faith, through the faith of Christ. And he sums this all up. And here's where I want to get into our notes tonight by stating his projected goals. He's talked about who he was years ago. He's talked about what happened on the road to Damascus. He's talked about how his worldview and his his concept of God and of righteousness had all changed. And where does that leave him now? That's what we read tonight. He said in verse 12, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. First off, we see in verse 12, Paul assessing his situation. Paul states what he wants to be in Christ Jesus. And Paul had a habit of sort of elevating the conversation to these lofty heights of great theological truths and and glorious concepts of who Christ is and what He's done for us. And then crashing down back to reality, back to the real world, Uh, bringing sort of our perspective back on the circumstances around us. And that's what he does in verse number 12. He's been talking about all these desires that he has to know Christ in this personal way, all these desires he has to identify with all of these great, deep, vast truths about Christ. And then, almost like a punch to the gut, he brings back the realism of the situation, and he notes that he has not already attained Now, if Paul could say he had not attained, I think we too could agree with him that we have not attained. But there is a deeper spiritual truth here that I think that we have to notice. Uh, You heard me talk last week about the difference between practical and positional truth. Positional truth is how God chooses to see us and treat us, judicially speaking. And practical truth is how God knows us to truly be and what God is aware of. Uh, there are times, for instance, that you might treat someone better than they deserve, better than they have earned. But you, for whatever reasons, you might have choose to treat them better than that. Uh, you are positionally putting them in a higher position than they practically deserve. Uh, but you may be aware of how they are living and behaving, reacting and treating you practically. And that's not lost on you. You've just chosen to overlook that so that you might exercise grace in their life, treat them better than they deserve. That's what God has done for us. Positionally, we are everything we ever will be and need to be in Christ Jesus. But practically speaking, I think we can all recognize and we can all say along with Paul, that I have not attained, that I am not perfect. Now, again, this word perfect here, it's being used in the context, uh, but it does not mean morally sinless or spiritually sinless. Rather, it means mature. But the word perfect also carries with it sort of a broader idea, which is the idea of something being finished, something being complete. In fact, the same word that is used here was used by our Lord when He hung on the cross, and He said, it is finished. It is finished. Well, what did He mean? He meant the work that He had come to do of dying on the cross, of fulfilling the will of the Father, it was completed, it was consummated, it was finished, it was total. And Paul says about himself, realistically speaking... I am not perfect, I'm not complete, I'm not a finished work yet. Uh, He recognized that there was room for growth even in his life. Uh, It's interesting because Paul's ambitions are measured by how much room there is for improvement. In other words, he did not rest on his laurels, he recognized what was lacking. Instead of looking backwards and saying, you know, I'm not what I used to be, he was looking forward and saying, I'm also not what I ought to be. And he did not allow the fact that he was not what he used to be to hinder him or to, to pacify him from pursuing that which he ought to be. So realistically speaking, he says, I, I'm not already uh, perfect. I've not yet apprehended. I have not reached the place where, we might use this terminology, I've not arrived yet. But then notice that he assesses his situation resolutely. At the end of verse number 12, he says this, forgetting this one thing I do forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I like a quote that I read in the commentary. Uh, It was said that D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, once said that uh, uh, we ought to say this one thing I do instead of these 40 things I dabble in. Uh, And it speaks to the importance of having a singular goal and focus and purpose in life. Now, we all have more irons in the fire than we probably ought to, but we should also be able to recognize that we have one driving purpose in life, And that is what Paul's purpose was, to press toward the mark for the prize, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now, again, I would remind you that in the broader scope of what Paul is dealing with here, he's recognizing why God saved him. Why did God save him? Why did God save you? Why did he save me? Well, very simply put, God saved us to make us like Jesus Christ. We could sum up the purpose of of the redemptive plan of God as it relates to humanity in one simple statement, that God made us in His image, but we have never truly in His image shown. And only when we're like Christ will we be both man and God and will we resemble God in a fit way. The plan and purpose of God is to make us like Jesus Christ. That is that, is that which, for which Paul was apprehended. That, it's that for which Paul was saved, was claimed, was, was taken into custody by God and by His providence. And Paul says, that is what I am pursuing after. And in order to do that, I have to forget the things that are behind me. Now again, we very often relate that to sin that we have committed. And I don't think that's inappropriate. I think it's okay to do that. But I would remind you that Paul didn't get through listing a bunch of wretched, horrible things that he did. He listed a bunch of things that at least in his lost condition, he thought were moral and upright. And he says, none of that matters anymore. He says, I count the lost of you know I count all things lost that I might win Christ. All things are but done. Everything that I've done behind me is just that. It's behind me. This was a man that had taken the gospel to, to multiple continents. This was a man that had planted untold numbers of churches. This was a man that had stood before kings and would stand before an emperor and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But looking backwards over what he's accomplished, he says, I forget those things. I forget them because they're behind me. It's of no import. Instead, I look at what's ahead of me and what's ahead of me, what is, what is the course set, the work cut out for me is to day by day be more molded into the image of Christ. So we see him assessing his situation. Then we see him adjusting his sights. Uh, we see a, a full stop here. He says, I count not myself to have apprehended. I sort of backed up, and retaught, and retreaded some things there. Uh, but he says, I count not myself to have apprehended. I've not arrived uh, yet. And then we see a fresh start given at the end of verse number 13. But look at verse 14 with me. And I want you to notice how he described what he was pursuing. He said, I pressed toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. If I can, let me shore up my perspective and what I believe to be a biblical perspective on what that that prize was in saying that it was to be more like Christ." I'm fascinated by the use of that word mark there. Mark. The mark of the prize, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, One of the reasons I'm fascinated by it is because of one of the very basic definitions of what sin is in the Bible. You know, sin literally means to miss the mark. There are several words in your Bible that are used to describe sin and iniquity, but the most common one has that definition, to miss the mark. In other words, sin is not defined by that which is morally or, or... uh, socially or consciously uh, unpalatable or offensive to us, but rather sin is marked by anything that is lower than the standard of perfection that God has exhibited in Himself. That's the reason the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've missed the mark. The mark was perfection, but we have missed that. Paul says, I now have my eyes on a fresh mark, and that mark has been set by the perfect life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that now is the mark... That I'm striving for. One of the most foundational things you can do in your life if you want to make it productive. And really pastoring taught me this because as a pastor you're, you're sort of, you know, you don't typically have anybody day by day looking over your shoulders and it's really easy to allow days to slip away and it's easy to spend time on fruitless things and, and, and neglect things that are, that are more fundamental. And I found one of the things that helped me and continues to help me as a pastor is to set goals. To set goals and to write them down and to have an actionable plan and to have a mark that I'm striving for. I wonder how many of us in our Christian life view ourselves as being on this progressive path of becoming more like Jesus Christ. I wonder how many of us set goals for ourselves. Let me go ahead and say I'm preaching to me as much as I am anyone else in this room. Setting goals for ourselves. Now, I'm not saying we need to live and die by those goals, but I am saying it would be helpful if we would set some of them. Say, man, I'm, I'm gonna commit, I'm gonna commit for the next month, for the month of November, I'm gonna commit to be at church every single time. The next month in November, I'm gonna commit to every single day, pray, talk to the Lord for at least five minutes. I, I'm gonna read my Bible 15 minutes every single day. Whatever it might be, setting goals, setting a mark. And the purpose of those marks is to break down what is the overall purpose and goal and passion and intent of the Christian life, and that is to become more like Christ. He described it as a mark that had to be attained. He described it as a prize that was won. Something worth striving for. The imagery here sort of evokes the idea of someone running a race and having their eye on the finish line, on the ribbon, waiting to break through it. Not only that, he describes uh, the plan of God for his life as a high calling. As something that defines who a person is. When we think of someone having a calling in life, I remember when I used to work at a, an auto parts store delivering auto parts. And we used to have these meetings. We'd have them every Sunday morning. And uh I, I'd come in. I'd have to come in my suit and tie and stuff so I had to go to church afterwards. So I was always the most well-dressed man in the meeting at the auto parts store. And uh we would come in, and we would have these meetings. And can I just be honest with you? They were the dumbest meetings you could ever have. Because here's what we'd do. We'd all gather in a back room, and we would go over the the, you know, like, coupon book thing, paper, circular that they had for the month. And then they would look at all of us and they would say, now, why are you here? And they had all these like cheesy management speeches that they had printed out that they would go through. And I remember one time, um, the my manager, he asked, he said, uh, who here? This is just a job to you and nothing more. And nobody raised their hand except for me and this old guy from Michigan named Nort. Me and Nort raised our hand. Right. And uh, man, that made the manager mad. He said, you tell me this is just a job? I said, look, man, I'm not, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but it is. It's, it's a paycheck. It's just something that I, that I come here, I do a job for you, I hope I do it well, and I earn a paycheck. This isn't my passion in life. I'd find it discouraging if it was. <laughs> this is not my, my goal in life. See, when we talk about a calling, we talk about something that defines a person. There was a priestly calling in the Old Testament. And that person, whatever else they might have been, they were a priest. There was a prophetic calling in the Old Testament. And they were known as a prophet. On and on we could go through the word of God. What does Paul say is the calling upon his life? The high calling of God in Christ Jesus. My calling is to do the will of God and to do it by being in Christ and him in me and me being more like him. In other words, the prize, the goal for Paul here was to become more like Jesus Christ, and he wanted, and he desired, he understood that one day, and he would go on to say this. We'll cover it tonight if we can, uh, if we can hurry. But he would go on to say that one day his vile body would be made like unto Christ's glorious body. Uh, John himself said it in this way: it "Say, it said that we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We'll be transformed in, into his into his image. We will we will be robed in his glory." Paul himself said, "Beholding him face to face, will be changed like unto his glory." But until that time comes, until that positional reality becomes practical, Paul says, I am doing everything I can to make my practical way of living look as much like the positional truth of how God sees me in Jesus Christ. He says, that is my goal, is to be more Christ-like. So now let's move on to the next major section in in this portion, the Christian and his brethren. Paul, again, sort of brings us back down to earth and he begins to give some more practical exhortations. Look at verse number 15 with me. He says, Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. I want you to notice a couple things here. First, there's an exhortation that is given in verse number 15. He says, Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, Be thus minded. I told you a moment ago that that word perfect, even given the clear contextual definition, has to be taken with a little bit of a poetic understanding. What I mean by that is this, that of course Paul does not mean sinless in in that passage. Uh, But even him not meaning the term sinless, when he uses it, it has a strength of force In verse number 12, I'm not already perfect, I'm not already complete, I'm not a finished work, God's still working on me, uh, as we might say. And when he uses it again in verse number 15, evidently it has a little bit different idea behind it, because he acknowledges that he himself is perfect, and that there's other people that are perfect. So, again, here he's not talking about morally sinless, but he is saying that he is a mature Christian. And he's saying as many people as are mature Uh, they should have this same perspective and this same mind. Now, I love what Paul does here. There's sort of a... I don't want to say a trick he does with the language, but there's a a linguistic uh, tactic that he employs here that I think is very fascinating. He does this in other places. He takes for granted the spiritual development of the person he's writing to. And he allows them to, maybe out of shame, maybe out of obligation, responsibility maybe out of a little twinge of awkwardness, to step into and appropriate the truth that he is setting forth. He says, "...let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded." In other words, I've told you what mature Christianity looks like. And I'm going to trust that all the mature Christians out there are going to be living this way. Now, what's a person going to do when they hear that? Well, they're either going to say, "...well, I'm not living that way, so I must not be very mature." Or they're going to say, "...if I want to claim that I'm a mature Christian..." that I'm going to have to live in this man. Either way, he sort of pigeonholes them, not with a demanding, foreboding spirit, but by sort of leading them to a conclusion that they have to draw, if they think about it, in a right-headed way. He commands them to embrace this same truth and this same principle. He notes their standing, that they are perfect or positionally righteous, and that their practical way of living should then emulate That Notice the state that he speaks of. He says, and if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Again, I love the tact and the gentleness that Paul uses here. Paul could be a rough character when he wanted to be. He could speak strong language when he wanted to be. But the tenderness and the way he broaches this subject is precious. Because he, he says, I know you're all a bunch of mature Christians out there. And I know you're already living this way. And so I'm not telling you how to live. I'm just talking about how mature Christians should live. And he does not berate him or browbeat them. And then to give a little extra juice to what he said, he says, and if there's anybody out there who is slacking or lacking in these areas, he says, I'm going to trust that God's going to reveal this unto you. Now, I preached a sermon on this not long ago, and I wish I could preach a sermon on it right now. But suffice it to say that in our Christian life, We ought to be humbled, submitted unto the Lord to such a degree that anything the Lord deals with us about, we'll take it as truth, as wisdom, and we'll take it as for our good. And Paul said, if you don't have this mind frame, be humble enough that you're willing to listen to God and receive correction. He speaks about their state, and then he speaks about their steps. And I think this is important. Verse number 16. He says, nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Now, don't, don't divorce words in a passage from each other because there, there are themes that are floating around. You remember what he said back in verse number 12, not as though I had already attained. He's talking about making progress in his Christian life. He's saying, when I say I have fully attained, that will mean I'm like Jesus Christ. Right? That's what he's overall getting at. I'm not I've not already attained. I'm not already perfect. I'm not just like Jesus, but I'm pressing forward, and I am increasingly and incrementally attaining more Christ likeness day by day. Then he brings this word back up. Verse number sixteen, he says, Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. In other words, he says, we've set a standard in our life, and I wrote it down this way, that from that standard, we shouldn't back up, back down, or back off. Whatever direction, well, whatever whatever movement is going on in our Christian life, let's make sure it's always forward movement. Let's make sure we're not going backwards in our walk with the Lord. Since we've already attained to this rule, we've already grown this much, and we can at least ensure... We may not be outpacing the people around us. The Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. It's a marathon, not a, not a sprint. And you know something that I have found, not by experience, because I don't run unless I'm chased, but just you know watching other healthy people and the things they do in life. A sprint is about beating everybody else. That's what the race is all about. And in a marathon, there are first and second and third and however many places. It's not that there is no placement. But by and large, the marathon is not really about placing. It's more about finishing. We need to get it out of our head that we're in a race against other Christians. I, I understand that a little healthy competition is can be a good thing. But at the end of the day, we're not racing against one another. We're all headed same track, same race, same destination, same finish line. Or we should be anyways. And we should at least, if nothing else, we should get our eyes off of other people and how they're running. Because you know the real danger? The danger is not that when they speed up, we speed up. The danger is that when they slow down, we slow down. And you know what I've seen at the church collective in the past 60 years or so? That people have slowed down and everybody else has slowed down and then they have slowed down. I'm talking about in righteousness, holiness, standards, conviction, zeal, uh, soul-mindedness. There's this incremental thing where everybody's backing off and doing this kind of like stagger-step thing. And meanwhile, the church is looking less like the church should. And we have less influence and less respect and less import and less power. And we seem to all be okay with it because we're still keeping somewhat of pace with each other. But the problem is we've, we're, not, we're not walking to the same rule that we've attained to. We're backing away. We're backing down. We're backing off. So there's an exhortation here. And then notice his example, verse number 17. He says, Brethren, be ye followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Man, there's a couple important things I want to note here. One, and, and the two thoughts here are Paul's first example and then his further example. There's a couple things I want to say. One, I don't think Paul would have said this if the Holy Ghost hadn't made him say it. Uh, Years after this, he would write to Timothy on the cusp of his death, on the eve of his martyrdom, and he would say that he's the chiefest of sinners. I don't think Paul necessarily thought, I'm such a great example. But he recognized this basic fundamental truth. People do need leaders and they do need examples. Consider it juxtaposed to what he says about others. He, he tells them, follow me. And then He says, if you don't want to follow me, follow somebody else that's living like me. <laughs> follow me or follow, follow somebody like me. And He says, this is the reason that's so important, because there's many that walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Listen, we need godly examples in life. Because there are plenty of ungodly examples in life. And we need to, we need to own the fact that we are an example to others around us. And we need to bury this sort of cheap false humility that is really nothing but hypocrisy in, in imagining that we're not important enough for anybody to pay attention to how we're living. Paul could have very easily said, man, I'm nobody, just look at Jesus. In fact, he had told him that earlier in the, in the epistle. He said, look, uh, look, look to Jesus. Let, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. But he knew what they would do with that. They'd do what a lot of people would do. Oh, well, yeah, Jesus is an example, but he was perfect. I can't live perfectly. And very often people will dismiss the example of Christ because of his deity, because of his divinity. So Paul says, let me give you an example that's a little more practical, uh, that's a little more human. So I'm not a perfect man. He just got through saying, I've not attained, I'm not perfect. But he is saying this, there are worse people that you could follow after. And he recognizes that people are watching him, observing him, and looking to him as an example. We as Christians can abdicate our responsibility to be a good example out of some sordid, twisted idea of false humility. Or we can accept the fact that the world is full of examples, good and bad. And we can either shy away from being a good, strong leadership example to other people in whatever capacity and avenue of life we find ourselves in. But to do that is to abandon them to the worst examples, to the lesser examples. He recognizes that people need godly folks to look up to. One of the first things that, and really the Lord did this in my life, Um, I don't know that I did it, but I was very conscious that it was taking place when it was. Uh, My my pastor that I grew up under, I mean from like, you know, before I was ever born, he was my, my family's pastor. He died in November of 2009 been ten years ago. And I was voted into Pastor Walridge Baptist Church in August of two thousand ten. And I had friends in ministry, but there's one particular individual that God laid on my heart that I sort of picked out to be my pastor. And I've never gone to the man's church, never once, but I have I have embraced him as an authority and as a figure of accountability in my ministry and I have I have sort of allowed his opinion to carry more weight than it maybe otherwise would have. You know why? Because I need an example. And this is a man that's been pastoring for a number of years, that has a healthy church, that's living for the Lord. He's not a perfect man, but he's a godly man. And I call him my pastor. I've said it to his face. I've said it to probably a thousand other people that this brother is my pastor. I've never gone to his church, but I need an example. We all need examples. Embrace the good examples around you. Be a good example to those that are around you. Paul points to his example and then uh, the further examples. And then he talks about not only faithful brethren, but false brethren. Verses 18 and 19. We were, we're sort of uh, we've already read this, but I, I want us to notice it. He, he points to their number in verse number 18. And he warns the church at Philippi about them. He says there's folks around here that have walked away from the cross of Christ. He said now they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. This would be in the strictest sense of the word an apostate. An apostate is someone that has, that has knowingly turned away from revealed biblical truth. They know what the truth is, but for a myriad of reasons, and he details some of them, they have abandoned it for self-serving reasons. An apostate is not the same as a, as a heretic. An apostate is not the same as a reprobate. A person can be a heretic without being an, an apostate. They can be a heretic and have heretical doctrines, but do so in ignorance. Uh, They can be a reprobate and have no doctrinal position. There's a lot of lost people. The Bible talks about uh, sodomites, homosexuals, that God has given them over to a reprobate mind. And that has nothing to do necessarily with their theological perspective. They might be an atheist reprobate. They might be a Baptist reprobate. Uh, but because of their immorality and because of their seared conscience and their their un, uh, unsurrendered spirit to the truth of the word of God, they have become a reprobate and uh, God cannot deal with them uh, through conscience anymore. He has to deal with them through other means. But an apostate is a man that has known the truth, but has willingly, voliciously, consciously chosen to turn and to walk away from it. And Paul says, listen, there's people out there like that. And if you're not careful, they'll ensnare you. He calls them enemies of the cross of Christ. I love what one commentator said. He doesn't call them enemies of Christ uh, because were they enemies of Christ, there would still be hope because we were all the enemies of Christ. But the cross changed us from being enemies of Christ. But if they're enemies of the cross of Christ, there's no hope for them. For the cross is the only thing that can turn an enemy into a son. These are people that have turned and walked away from the truth. They have trampled underfoot the blood of Christ. And he says, if you're not careful, uh, they'll ensnare you. But Paul's spirit about them was not bitter, was not resentful. Paul was not railing against them. Paul was weeping for them. He said, listen, I tell you now, even weeping, weeping. Paul was broken for these people. He did not relish in this. And I'm not going to go down this road. It would not edify. But suffice it to say... Um, To have the spirit and mind of Christ and the heart of Christ is to be broken over your enemy's fall. To be broken over your enemy's fall. Not because it affects you, not because it hurts you, but simply because it was someone that fell. You remember whenever Saul was killed and the fella comes back and and... (laughs) Uh, reports to David, and he thinks he's going to be rewarded for coming and reporting that Saul and Jonathan were dead. And David instead thrusts him through, has him killed. And this is this is the this is the royal official government statement from from David, the new king of of Israel. You know what it was? Hey, listen, uh, how how treacherous, how sad it is, how tragic it is. He said, "How are the mighty fallen?" He said, "Tell it not in Gath or Philistia." Saul was his enemy. Saul wanted to kill David. But when Saul was struck down, David didn't gloat. He didn't rejoice. Instead, he said, Don't spread it around. Don't tell it around. Don't rejoice in it. Don't gloat in it. We ought to be heartbroken because God's anointed and the King of Israel fell today. It's a tragic, it's a heartbreaking thing. And sometimes in this battle, this spiritual warfare that we're in, we can become so callous that we lack even the basic compassion To be heartbroken over people's sinfulness and disobedience. Paul said, I'm broken because I know what this is going to mean for them. He talked about their nature. Verse number 19. He says, whose end is destruction. That word destruction sometimes is given to us as the word perdition. And uh, when it talks about Judas, the son of perdition. First time it's used in the New Testament was when Christ said, I talked about people going down a broad way and he said it leadeth to destruction. I think we can very clearly understand that when he says destruction, he means eternal damnation, hell. He means these people were lost. And uh, when faced with the cross of Christ, instead of making a refuge and a strong tower of it, they made merchandise of it. And because of that, uh, they've abandoned their only hope. And so he notes their doom, that these are lost people. These are not just misguided misguided people, they're lost people. And then he talks about their desires. And he says three things about them. Notice what he says in verse 19. Whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, whom i earthly things. False teachers are marked by these three things. One is their God, and it says their God is their belly. What that means is self-indulgence. Self-indulgence. Uh, consuming, if we could say it that way. Uh, now listen, everybody, the most God-called preacher you've ever met in your life, has to have gas in his gas tank and a roof over his head and food to eat. Uh, I don't think Paul is commanding us to live a, a life of abject poverty. But he's saying these false teachers, uh, they only live for and they only minister for what they can consume. Their hirelings was the word that Christ used. Hirelings. He talks about their God. Then he talks about their glory. He says their glory is in their shame. They are self-aggrandizing. Uh, remember this terminology because if you'll you'll file this away in the dictionary of your mind you'll begin to notice this celebrity Christianity celebrity Christianity there's a lot of it going on I'm talking about even in in Baptist, independent Baptist circles celebrity Christianity cult of personality all about picking your, your favorite preacher and supporting him whether he's right, whether he's wrong and elevating him to a position above the authority of the word of God uh, a person who is self-aggrandizing, who makes it about himself instead of about Jesus Christ, is someone whose glory is in their shame. And then notice their goal, they mind earthly things. Terrestrial ambition trumps celestial affection for them. It's all about how big of a name they can build here and how much of a following they can gather here. And uh, he, he points these guys out, he nails them to the wall. Why is this so important, by the way, to this church at Philippi? Because everywhere Paul went, false teachers followed. Everywhere that Paul went, false teachers followed. And he understood how important it was that the church at Philippi be guarded against it. So he talks about the Christian and his brethren. Then he talks about the Christian and his birthright. Very quickly, look at verse 20. He talks about our position. He says, for our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That word conversation is very, very rich. Uh, it means a way of life or a way of living, but it also carries with it the idea of citizenship. Citizenship. And I'm going to use a word here that I think maybe marries the two of those things uh, in a way that will make it, you know, digestible for you. And it's the word culture. Culture. What is culture? Culture is where citizenship and, and way of living sort of meet together. Where identity, national identity, geographical identity, whatever it might be, that identity and our way of living, they meet together, they swirl together, they create a culture. Paul says our culture is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our home is in heaven. And he talks about our beloved homeland and then that leads him to talk about our blessed hope. He says from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's reminding them that this world is not what it's about, that this life is not what it's about, that this earth is not what it's about, that these carnal temporal things are not what it's about when he uses the term look for here, it means to eagerly wait for something. I love the way he says we look. We look. Those two words blow up a lot of people's theology. You know why? Because it tells us that the return of Christ is imminent. And not just that it's imminent, but that it was always imminent after Christ ascended up to heaven. I guess maybe an argument could be made that before 90 A.D. and the completion of Scripture. But I would say this, that Paul's perspective... He didn't say you all one day will look. He didn't say someday people will look for him. He said we look for him. We look for him. Paul's life was defined by an earnest anticipation of the return of the Lord Jesus. And then he talks about our prospect in verse number twenty-one. He says, Who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. The word vile there, tell me this isn't funny. Don't you think God has a sense of humor. You know what the word vile here means? It means humiliating. <laughs> Our humiliating body. You ever just feel like a scripture jumps out and smacks you in the face? (laughs) Our humiliating body. Vile body. Weak body. Powerless body. Corruptible body. Mortal body. said one day it's going to be like unto Christ's glorious body. It'll be fashioned after His glorious body. It means to be patterned after. In other words, our glorified body is going to be like Jesus' glorified body. If I had time and I know I do not, But I'll just dig in here and rest for a little while because there's a lot of beautiful truth here. Uh, They knew who Jesus was. Uh, People say, are we going to know each other in heaven? Yes, we will. Of course we will. So much of the sweetness of heaven would be robbed of us if we didn't know each other in heaven. You say, well, preacher, does that mean I'm going to be this ugly in heaven? I hope not. And I hope I'm not either. But I know in some mysterious way we are going to know one another. In heaven, our relationships will have changed. We won't marry and be given in marriage. I suspect the blood relationships we have won't carry the weight we'll have. Not not because we will have a lesser relationship, but because we'll have a greater relationship. Uh, that that connection will be surpassed when we get to heaven by a deeping, deeper, more meaningful relationship that we have. We'll know one another. Uh, we'll will be without sin. We'll be uh, immune from death and pain and sorrow and suffering and. On and on we could go. We'll be given a glorified body. And then there's a guaranteed belief. I love this. Look what it says. According to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. This is a statement of bold conviction and faith in the resurrection. And in the power of the resurrection to subdue all things. Listen carefully. Including our vile body. You know what that means? That means our flesh. Our sin nature. It's not going to be eradicated on this side of glory. But on that side of glory, even our physical body will be brought under subjection and will be subdued under the power of God.